If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to, uh, to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. As I mentioned last week, I believe that this parable, which we are about to read and consider, uh, consider, should be read in conjunction with the passage we looked at last week in verses 14 through 18. So Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was allayed a, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, the grass wather, uh, withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, as I mentioned, I believe that this parable should be read in conjunction with that passage we looked at last Sunday. If you recall, last week in verse 14, Jesus, or Luke, told us that the Pharisees who were lovers of money, after hearing all these things, that is to say what Jesus had to say about the use of our money and wealth. So these Pharisees, after hearing these things, and who were lovers of money, ridiculed Jesus. And this ridicule was in some sense foreshadowing the ridicule that Jesus would experience on the cross. Now, over the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Very instructive insight that Jesus teaches us elsewhere. This tells us that the ridicule of the Pharisees was not random, it was not coming out of left field, but rather it was the overflow of their heart. Like water boiling over in a pot under the counter, 
the Pharisees' hearts were boiling over into ridicule. So we consider, well, what's in the pot of the Pharisees' heart that's boiling over into ridicule? Well, one of the issues is their love for money. But we also saw that they have this inclination to misread God's law, to misread the scriptures, and they have this idolatrous love for pleasing people. They fear man more than they fear God. And all of those things are swirling in the pot of the Pharisee's heart that's overflowing into this ridicule. Well, all of these various things in the heart of the Pharisees are just versions of unbelief, manifestations of unbelief. That is to say, the fundamental issue that the Pharisees are dealing with is unbelief. So if you want to change the Pharisees, if you want to change the language of their mouth, you change their heart, specifically the unbelief in their heart. I believe that's what Jesus is, is really teaching in this parable. The fundamental issue for the Pharisees and everyone else who's fallen in Adam is unbelief. So here Jesus is really pressing into these two concepts of belief and unbelief. Now we have to recognize this is a parable. This is a parable, and so I don't think we should press the, the details, or we shouldn't press the details of this parable beyond what this literary genre permits. For instance, I don't think Jesus is, is wanting to us to see the details, specifically the details that surround the afterlife, in literal detail, as if in the afterlife, we will literally be able to speak to those in Hades. That's not really Jesus' point. His point is to press into these two topics of belief and unbelief. So that's what I'd like us to do this morning. And first we see belief and unbelief illustrated. Illustrated in the lives of these two characters, the rich man and Lazarus. You'll notice that Luke presents this very strong contrast between these two individuals. The rich man is, is the first individual described, and we are told both about his dress and his eating habits. You'll see that Luke tells us he was dressed in fine linen and these purple clothes. Now, fine linen likely is a reference to these white undergarments that would have been used in the ancient world. And these white undergarments were expensive. They were a sign of luxury. They signified membership among the elite. But purple clothes, that was a step up. That was even more luxurious. Put both of these together, and that's a sign of ultimate opulence, luxury. You are of the upper crust of society. Furthermore, notice we also read that this rich man feasted sumptuously every day. Now, we know from history that King Agrippa II, he was the ruler that Paul came under in Acts 27. King Agrippa II was known to hold the meals of banquet proportions on a daily basis, which was extraordinary because even among the rich and the wealthy, most people could only afford to have a banquet on an annual basis. If you remember the parable of the prodigal, which we considered a few weeks ago, the father there is described as having some wealth. But even he couldn't afford to kill the fattened calf on a daily basis. Therefore, this rich man is presented as someone of extreme wealth. He held a banquet, a feast, every day, 
dressed in white undergarments with purple robes. This is a wealthy, wealthy individual. But then there's Lazarus, complete opposite of this rich man. We read that Lazarus is exiled to the gate of this rich man. Probably what happened is this rich man had this estate and this grand gate that would have been the entrance into his estate, and Lazarus was plopped right outside the gate. Great chasm in between the rich man and Lazarus. Now notice that Luke, he, puts it, uh, he describes Lazarus' placement at the gate in the passive voice. He was lying at the gate. This tells us that, or at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And this passive verb may indicate that Lazarus was either crippled or so ill or sickly that he couldn't really even move himself, kind of stuck there. Furthermore, we read that he had sores covering his body. And the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now, boys and girls, these dogs are not like your puppy or your pet dog at home that gives you loving licks. No, these are mongrels. These are stray dogs that are vicious, they're mean, they're probably carrying diseases. These are not friendly licks. They probably are quite vicious licks. Abusing Lazarus, someone who can't really defend himself. We also are told that Lazarus is hungry. Longing just to be fed a morsel, a crumb from the table of this rich man who feasts sumptuously every single day. At banquets in the ancient world, it was common for guests at these banquets to have a loaf of bread on their laps as napkins. It acted sort of as an absorbent. And then at the end of the meal, these individuals would, would, clean, would take the, the, the piece of bread and wipe off their plates as kind of the first washing of, of the dishware. These, these bread napkins, as it were, would then be discarded outside the gate for the dogs. This may be what Lazarus is longing for. Just a, a morsel, a piece of these bread napkins that individuals from the banquet just discarded. See the contrast. Complete and utter contrast between the socioeconomic status and circumstances of this rich man and Lazarus. As I already mentioned, in this chapter, verse 14, Jesus, uh, or Luke tells us explicitly that these Pharisees were lovers of money. Lovers of money. Jesus said in the opening parable of this chapter that we are to use our money generously, that we are not to serve money, we are to serve God. No one can be devoted to two masters. This is an, an illustrative of really this whole gospel. Jesus has a lot to say about the dangers of wealth, and a lot to say about his concern for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for the unclean. So what should we make of all of these references, not only in this chapter, but even in the Gospels, to the socioeconomic conditions of wealth and poverty? Well, on one level, I think these socioeconomic conditions are meant to be illustrative of, of the spiritual life, of belief and unbelief, respectively. Think, for instance, of Jesus' version of the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. While Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Literal poverty oftentimes can be a symbol for the poverty of the soul that we are called to foster before God. Therefore, I believe that in this parable, we are meant to see the rich man and Lazarus as vivid illustrations of faith and unbelief. So let's think for a few moments about how Lazarus is an illustration of faith. It's quite remarkable. This Lazarus is the only individual of all of Jesus' parables that's given a name. Ordinarily, one was not given a name in parables. Lazarus is the only character. When you look at the, the, the meaning, the Hebrew meaning of the name Lazarus, it literally means God helps. So both in Lazarus's physical conditions, his circumstances, and in the meaning of his name, we see a great illustration of faith. So what is faith? Well, faith put quite simply, is a self-renunciation before God. Faith is a recognition that we are beggars, that we are spiritually impoverished, that we are spiritual Lazaruses. But it's not just that we're crippled outside the gate of the kingdom of God. No way to bridge that chasm. We are dead, as Paul says, in our sins and trespasses. We, like Lazarus, are naked and covered in sores, in need of the righteous robes of of Christ himself. We are spiritually thirsty and hungry, impoverished. This is who we are before, before God. We're beggars. So that's part of faith. Faith is self renunciation, but there's also a positive aspect of faith, a recognition that God is indeed our only source of help. And more specifically, God in Christ. So we look away from ourselves and we look to Christ. His death, his life, his resurrection is the only means of entering the gate of God's kingdom. Thus we see that Lazarus, both in his physical condition and circumstances and in the meaning of his name, is a vivid illustration of the nature of true faith. A looking away from ourselves and looking only to the one who can only help us out of the spiritual predicament. We also see on the flip side, a great and vivid illustration of what unbelief is in this rich man. Now again, this rich man is really the definition of self-sufficiency, not dependent upon anybody, but feasting and living in absolute luxury based on his own merits. And what does unbelief look like then before God? Well, it's, it looks like being a spiritual rich man. It looks like standing before God and saying, no, I don't really have need for you. I'm quite sufficient on my own. Unbelief says to God, I have no need of your son's righteousness because I'm pretty righteous on my own. I have no need of your son's death because I'm not, I'm not really a sinner. I have no need of your spirit because I'm pretty content where I'm at. Unbelief is a self-sufficiency before God. A recognition that we are not in need of God's help. We are not beggars. We can do it ourselves. So here we have another vivid illustration of the corollary. Unbelief 
Unbelief is being spiritual richment. Well, I don't think that we should completely spiritualize these socioeconomic conditions of poverty and wealth because oftentimes the Lord in his providence uses external circumstances for spiritual purposes. For instance, oftentimes he uses literal poverty or just by extension difficult circumstances, trials and sufferings in our life to create within us a spiritual poverty of the soul, to create and foster within us a dependence upon God. On the other hand, one of the unique temptations of prosperity is that it can foster within us a spiritual self-sufficiency before God. And so when we experience times of literal or metaphorical poverty, trials, sufferings in this life, we shouldn't interpret them as God's curse upon us, but we can take comfort that he has good purposes in these difficult circumstances in our life. And one of those purposes is to show up as the God who helps, to create within us a trust, a faith, not in ourselves, but in him. And when times of prosperity come, we shouldn't despise these things. We should embrace them as God's blessing, but also be on guard, because one of the temptations of prosperity is becoming spiritually self-sufficient. I'm content. I don't really need God. So we see faith and unbelief illustrated in both the lives of Lazarus and the rich man. We also see the consequences of faith and unbelief in these two men. As we continue on in this parable, this contrast between these two characters does not go away. This, the contrast in the afterlife is just as great as it was in this age. So we read on, beginning in verse 22, that both of these men die, and then we are told what happens after they die in the afterlife. Verse 22, we read that Lazarus was carried off by the angels after he passed to Abraham's side. Now, many of you probably have a footnote in your Bibles when it says Abraham's side, and it might say bosom as another... Um, way to render the word side. Now, many commentators believe that this reference to Lazarus going to Abraham's side or bosom is a reference to the heavenly banquet that we are looking forward to in the age, of come, age to come. Now, why? Why do many uh, scholars, commentators take this position? Well, this language of, of being at someone's side or upon someone's bosom is the language of being seated at a banquet. In John chapter 13, verse 23, the Upper Room Discourse, the Last Supper, uh, we, we are told that John, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side or bosom. Same language, same phrase. This is banquet language. This is the language of being seated at a great feast. Lazarus, who was starving and thirsty in this age, has a place at the heavenly feast and banquet. Talk about a reversal. But then with a the rich man, we also read that he dies. He's buried and he goes to Hades. And in Hades, we see that he's experiencing God's judgment and, and wrath. But then in verse 24, you'll see that he cries out to Father Abraham. 
Father Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in languish in this flame. This rich man who was feasting sumptuously every single day didn't have a day in which he was not satisfied. Now in the age to come, is thirsty. So thirsty that he wants just a drop of water to touch his tongue. Talk about a reversal. We also see a great spatial reference and reversal in the afterlife. If you remember in, 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 in their earthly lives, there was a great chasm that existed between the Lazarus and the rich man. The Lazarus was outside the gate. The rich man was at his table in his estate, feasting lavishly. That was a chasm that Lazarus had no hope of traversing. He knew there was no hope of him having a seat at the table of this extremely wealthy man. Well, now in the age to come, there's also a great chasm, a chasm that will be impossible to traverse. That's what Father Abraham tells this rich man. There's a chasm that's between us, a chasm that I can't get to you, you can't get to me. So we see another great reversal of their two conditions. This part of our parable then teaches us about the consequences of belief and unbelief. The consequences of unbelief is God's judgment in the age to come, but it's described here in the language of thirst and hunger. The facade of self-sufficiency that unbelief gives in this age will be completely broken and shattered in the age to come. While the consequences of belief and faith is having a seat at the heavenly banquet. We don't have to necessarily take this language of a banquet in, in literal terms. It's, I mean, I don't know, are we going to be feasting on actual bread and wine in the age to come? The point of this, this um, image is, is uh, what it represents. Now think about how, uh, what, what a, uh, a special meal even in our own lives represents. Ideas such as joy, satisfaction, satiation, celebration, fellowship and communion with those who are dearest to us. Some of the best emotions and things in life are represented in a special meal with those whom we love. That's what we are to think about as we are told that faith gives us a right to this heavenly banquet. The ultimate version of joy and celebration and satisfaction awaits us in the age to come. That is the consequence of belief and faith in Jesus. Well, this parable concludes by giving us an answer to a, a very important question, a question that may have been on our minds from time to time, and it's the, the, what is the reason for unbelief? Why do some people just not believe? What's the reason? What's the cause of that? Father Abraham addresses that, that very question. So this rich man is in Hades, thirsty, longing for just a drop of water on his tongue. And he calls out to Father Abraham to send Lazarus. If, he's not, if Lazarus isn't going to come to him, well, at least send Lazarus to my five brothers who are still on earth to warn them so that they might repent and believe and not experience what I'm experiencing. 
Now, Abraham's response is to say, well, don't, don't they have Moses and the prophets? Don't they already have the Old Testament scriptures? If they aren't hearing them, they're not going to hear Lazarus who, who rises from the dead and says the same thing to them. And this word that, that the rich man uses for warn is a word that's used throughout the uh, Acts of the Apostles to refer to the apostles giving testimony to Christ. This is a call to faith and repentance. And Abraham says if they don't hear the scriptures, they're not going to hear someone who has risen from the dead. This rich man is under the conviction that the reason people don't believe is a lack of evidence, a lack of revelation. If we can just give people more evidence, more revelation, then the question of unbelief is solved. But Abraham rejects that. He says revelation is sufficient. God has sufficiently revealed himself both in creation and scripture. And so the reason for unbelief does not lie in a lack of evidence, in a lack of revelation. Where does it lie? Well, Abraham isn't explicit here, but when we look elsewhere in scripture, we see an explicit answer to this question of the reason of unbelief. So if you think for a few moments from Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, the apostle Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul agrees with Father Abraham. Revelation is sufficient. Just by virtue of creation, God's existence is plain and manifest. So the reason for unbelief lies in our fallen human nature. That we have natures that necessarily suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's who we are in Adam, and thus is the reason for unbelief. So sure, let's say God does miraculously add to the revelation he's already given to us. What this tells us is that that wouldn't really help. Think of a batter in a batting cage. Instead of hitting 100 balls, instead of hitting 50 balls, he hits 100 balls. There would just be more truth for fallen human natures to suppress. This then leads us to a very important question. And that question is, if we are all born in Adam, we all are spiritually dead, if we're all born into this, this, this world in unbelief, those who think, believe the facade that we are self-sufficient before God, how do we go from being spirit, a spiritual rich man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and only hope in the age to come is thirst and hunger, how do we go from being a spiritual rich man to being a spiritual Lazarus? One who embraces the truth in faith. One who has the great invitation of being seated at God's heavenly banquet. How do we change? Well, if you're here today and, and, and you say, well, yeah, I believe. Not perfectly, but I believe. I recognize I'm a spiritual beggar before God. I recognize that God indeed is my help, that I'm in need of Christ's death and resurrection, his life of righteousness. If that's you, that's evidence that a work of the Spirit has already occurred in your heart. 1 John 5, 1 said, those who believe have been born of God. Meaning if you can see yourself as a spiritual Lazarus today, 
you look away from yourself and you're looking to Christ, that's evidence that God has already been at work in your heart, giving you eyes to see and ears that truly hear Moses and the prophets, as it were. Sometimes we as Reformed churches get accused of forgetting about the third member of the Trinity, the so-called frozen chosen. But our, our, all of our theology is permeated with the work of the Spirit. Pentecost is absolutely decisive to God showering the benefits of Christ upon us. I love J, uh, the late J.I. Packer once described the work of the Spirit using the illustration of, a spot, of spotlights. So if you guys have been to a Mariners game before, Imagine you go to a Mariners game and fifth inning comes around and the spotlight's shut off. It's pitch black. Game is called off, have to go home. Someone asks you the next day, oh, well, how was the game last night? My bet is you're not going to be talking about the game, you're going to be talking about the spotlights. The spotlights weren't working. Ruin the night. Let's say you go to another game and the spotlights work perfectly. Mariners win the game. Someone asks you how the game was the next day, you're not going to be talking about the spotlights. You're going to be talking about the game. Well, in a similar way, the Spirit is sort of like a spotlight that shines its light upon Christ. And so when the Spirit is doing His work, He fades the background, and all we talk about is Christ. And so the evidence that a, the church is Spirit-filled, the evidence that a person is Spirit-filled, is if Christ is magnified, Christ is spoken of a lot, Christ is the one who receives the spotlight. That's evident that the Spirit is at work because this is, a, this is the spirit of Christ, the helper of Christ, who's come to illuminate all that Christ spoke in his earthly ministry. So as you know, we, in a few moments, have the great privilege of coming together at the banquet that foreshadows that great heavenly banquet, the Lord's Supper. And this is a time in which the spirit once again shines the spotlight upon Christ. It's a time for us to remember, to remember who we are as spiritual beggars, to remember who we are as those who are in need of the death of Christ, the death of the one who was rich but became poor so that we might become rich. It's a time for us to remember the life of Christ, the life of Christ which covers our naked, sore-ridden bodies. But it's more than that. It's a time for us to have communion with the host of this meal, which is Christ himself. Again, think about a meal. What does the meal signify? At its very core, it's an intimate fellowship with other human beings. Now, today you probably could have a virtual meal with someone, but in the ancient world, that was not possible. A meal entailed embodied uh, fellowship. It's one of the reasons why Jesus was so um, ridiculed for having a meal with the sinners and the tax collectors. This is scandalous. This is an intimate time. In a similar way, this isn't just a time to remember. This is a time in which we have communion with Christ himself. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong to Jesus. This meal is a meal in which the Spirit strengthens our relationship with Jesus, our union with Jesus. And so as we prepare our hearts to come to that meal, remember that this passage, this parable before us, is calling us to faith. It's calling us to be spiritual Lazaruses and thus be granted a right, a seat, at this future heavenly.